Hello out there. Sorry it's been a while. Welcome back to The Meme Stream, the podcast following meme students present and past on their adaptive walks of life as they embark on a career in evolutionary biology. The Meme is a master's program that enables upcoming evolutionary biologists from all over the globe to study and research in Europe. This podcast will travel all over Europe and the world, leaping, as Richard Dawkins says, from brain to brain, meme to meme, telling tales of our scientific ventures and research projects. I'm Kate Garland, one of your traveling hosts and creator of the Meme Stream, coming to you now from Boston, USA, and this is episode 5. This episode is brought to you by the fantastic Merve Ozdoprak, who interviewed the past meme student Clara Groot at the Joint Evolutionary Biology Conference last year in Montpellier. They talk about Clara's past meme project using herbarium samples to assess the evolutionary history of a plant pathogen. And now over to Merve and Clara. Hello and welcome everybody. I'm Merve, your traveling host, and we are coming live to you from the ESAP conference in Montpellier, France. I have with me Clara Groot. She's a former meme student graduating in 2018. Welcome. Thank you. So I have you here with me today to talk about the project that you conducted during your meme studies. When was it? When did you conduct the project? Um, a couple of months ago. So I started in March 2018 and I finished in August. 2018. And what is the title of your project? So the title would be uh, Deciphering the uh, uh, Emergence History of the Crop Pathogen Xanthomonas citrine uh, using historical herbarium samples. That is the title. <laughs> Very long, complicated title. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the project about? Can you give more details? So we wanted to um, know more about the emergence history of this pathogen that uh, infects citrus plants and uh, causes the fruit to drop prematurely and causes a lot of problems economically uh, and also geographically uh, for uh, trade. And uh, what we wanted to do was to actually um, obtain the DNA uh, from infected herbarium samples, which show signs of uh, infection from this pathogen. Uh, And with that, we wanted to actually um, look at certain evolutionary parameters. So for example, we wanted to maybe find out when actually the, the pathogen spread to the rest of the world, whether its origin is in Asia, as it has always been thought it was. Um, we wanted to know how fast it evol- evolved, so um, what its mutation rate is, this, this kind of things. And um, using herbarium samples facilitates this, these kind of um, inferences because uh, they are old samples and they help us. So that's the advantage of herbarium samples, that they're old? Isn't there no recent example of this pathogen? No, I mean, yeah, we have modern samples as well. But uh, when you actually want to do phylogenetics, when you want to look at the genetic relationship and you want to link this to time, Mm -hmm. you need to do... um, Actually, uh, you need to calibrate trees, which means that you have to convert the molecular divergence to time. And for that, you need to have certain uh, information. Uh, So you can use fossils or you can use events in history and link these dates to certain uh, moments where uh, certain genetical events in your tree. 
like the split of certain strains or something like this. Uh, but for pathogens, it's very tough, to, for microorganisms, it's tough to have information from fossils and things like this. So when you actually have um, very old samples, uh, for example, we had samples from the 19th century, uh, to very modern samples, you have about 150 years of span. And for a pathogen that often like allows enough um, evolution, actually enough evolutionary change within this time to actually uh, measure it. And when you are able to, uh, to measure the evolutionary change between the youngest and oldest sample, mm -hmm. then you can actually use this to um, date the tree and find out how the where when in history the sample actually spread. That's interesting. What were the exact methods you applied? How did you go about discovering the evolutionary history of this pathogen? Okay, so first thing we did was uh, to find the herbarium samples, <laughs> which is what my supervisor did. He went <clears throat> to several herbaria across the world and he went looking for herbarium samples of citrus species that show infection of uh, Xanthomonas citri. And then uh, secondly, we chose a couple of these and we did DNA extractions. Uh, we also tried to optimize the protocol in the lab uh, because um, obviously these herbarium samples host dead DNA, which has, uh, well, dead tissue and the DNA has accumulated damage. It's ancient DNA basically, so you have to uh, uh, do special um, uh, things to actually uh, let it during the extraction to have uh, DNA of good quality, enough DNA and stuff because the, the DNA is fragmented and damaged in general. So that's something we did and then we sequenced the DNA and we chose those samples which had a nice proportion of uh, the, the pathogen, mm -hmm. pathogen DNA. And then after that what we did was uh, to uh, map it to a reference a reference genome that uh, exists of this pathogen um, and we actually pooled our old samples with modern genomes that we already had mm -hmm. from other projects. These were genomes from everywhere in the world basically uh, and our old samples were mostly from Asia mm -hmm. um, and uh, using these genomes we basically built phylogenetic trees. Uh, which we then tried to calibrate using uh, the sample dates. So um, whenever we found in uh, evolutionary change that we could measure, we would use this to actually date our tree. And we could only do that for um, <clears throat> the part of the, 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 the global tree um, which hosts strains that uh, are present now in the southern Indian Ocean. Okay. So those are islands like Mauritius, La Réunion, which is where I was based, the, the Comoros Islands, Mayotte, these were all um, part of that clade. Basically it was the clade where we had the most genomes and we had one ancient herbarium sample that, that clustered with them and we found um, an evolutionary change. We could measure that and so we dated the tree and uh, we found, well, the, the, tr the root of the tree was dated to 1851. That's when the pathogen emerged? Oh, that's what you find evidence for? Basically, the, the, the age of the root tells you when the most recent common ancestor of this clade was alive, mm -hmm. basically. And um, in uh, epidemiology, it is a proxy for when this pathogen arrived to this region for mm -hmm. the first time. 
So we could basically more or less think that it arrived in mid-19th century. Do you find historical evidence for that? Well, um, the first description of the, 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 the illness is later, is, is in the 1920s or, or 1910s, mm-hmm. actually. But the thing is also, um, it might have arrived earlier. I mean, it, it's time to spread, right? Right, It's interesting exactly. that you can find co- like historic relations to what you find in your data. Yes, and it's always very important also to look at the historical records. But so actually what is really cool is that um, more or less in the, I, in the 50s, well, that's actually a couple of years after uh, most islands uh, banned uh, slavery. Uh, and that's actually very interesting because um, we know that Xanthomonas comes, from, most research shows that it's a bacterium that comes from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that when in Reunion and in Mauritius uh, slavery was abolished, there was a huge lack of working power in the sugarcane industry, which was like the main uh, economical sector of these islands. Uh, Because obviously all the black slaves were free and so they went on to do different things and a large percentage of the workers were gone. And uh, at that time, uh, both Mauritius and Reunion were uh, uh, an English and a French island. Yeah. Um, and so the French and the English state decided to fill up this lack of working power by um, <coughs> hiring, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, it was actually quite uh, close to slavery, but bringing a lot of workers from other colonies to La Réunion and to Mauritius. And a very large proportion of these people came from China and India. Yeah. And they still make up, ethnically, they still make up quite a large percentage of the population. So obviously we, this is only storytelling and we don't have any proof, but the fact that um, the bacterium arrived around this period, um, almost at the same time, a bit later than the abolishment of slavery, was also the same time we had this large migration wave of people coming from Asia. Yeah. We know that these people didn't only bring themselves, they brought a lot of their stuff and they also brought seeds and fruits and their own plants. So it might actually have been possible that uh, the pathogen arrived to the islands actually during this migration wave when all these workers from Asia came. It's interesting, but obviously we don't have actual proof for this, but I mean, it could be possible. It's a good suggestion, at least. And yeah, and actually in our tree we we saw several um, cases where where most probably human uh, trade and transport and just the connectivity of the world in general, of the human world, probably has really facilitated the spread of this bacterium because we also find that uh, the strain of Xanthomonas that uh, now actually populates Martinique, which is an island in the Caribbean Ocean, um, clusters with the strains from the southern Indian Ocean. So that's actually really at the other side of the world. Yeah, so transport via woodlock is not likely. (laughs) Well, no, exactly, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But the funny thing is like, they cluster with strains from La Réunion, mm-hmm. and the funny is, like, La Réunion is a French island, and so is Martinique. <laughs> so, you know, there, there might be actually increased contact between these, like, increased trade through France, etc. Mm-hmm. So, um, it w- it, it, f- for me, it seems quite likely that this bacterium, which, by the way, spread not that long ago, the, it spread... A, over the world more in the 19th century and in 20th century. Uh, more actually in the 20th century, and so uh, clearly it has to do with human trade and uh, 
human spread, I think. And um, what's the impact of this pathogen on uh, economics, on agriculture, on human lives? Well, to begin with, obviously, it causes a lot of crop losses. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly the statistics of how much, but it definitely causes crop losses. I was in La Réunion, which is a place where uh, the, the, the pathogen exists and poses problems. And uh, um, so it, it, it causes crop losses to begin with. But secondly, it also causes a lot of uh, money loss in other ways. For example, um, places that don't actually have the pathogen have declared it a quarantine organism. That actually means that every citrus uh, plant or fruit that arrives in the EU, for example, where it doesn't exist, every one of these fruits and plants needs to pass through a border control, it needs to stay a couple of weeks in quarantine, needs to be tested, so we have to do genetical tests to see if the pathogen is, uh, is present on the fruits and other kinds of tests. And that obviously costs time and money and creates obviously also a trade barrier yeah. between countries. So in that sense, it obviously doesn't facilitate economy. Um, you have the crop losses on the one hand, and then you have also the economical losses and the trade barriers. So obviously it, it is quite relevant. But more than anything, actually, you know, when you do evolutionary studies on crop pathogens, and I mean, this is, uh, this is our model organism, but you could apply this to any other. And uh, actually, these kind of studies using herbarium samples were first done on the uh, potato late blight disease, yeah. which caused the Irish uh, potato grape famine. famine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, it actually shows us very much where does the pathogen, or uh, what, what's the origin of the pathogen? Um, when did it emerge? Which is the strain that caused the emergence? And we can actually go way deeper now. We can look at uh, specific genes that cause virulence if the geno genome is annotated. Uh, we can look at their evolution. And obviously, having older samples, such as herbarium samples, which are fixed, which are fixed in time, let's yeah. put it this way, can uh, provide you, obviously, new insights in how uh, the pathogen emerged and how specific genes evolved. And obviously, it also sheds light on, on our role, how we actually facilitated the spread of the pathogen, and how we actually, maybe in the future, can, uh, can uh, prevent these kind of things. And uh, another thing that uh, actually is great when you manage to calibrate a tree is that you can, uh, for example, estimate a mutation rate. Yeah which is what we did. So the mutation rate that we estimated is a mean mutation rate, which means that we used all loci in our, uh, all, all SNPs that we had, so we didn't differentiate between neutrally evolving or uh, SNPs or SNPs that were you know, under selection, mm -hmm. which means that obviously it's, it's, it's a mean rate, it's kind of a rough estimate, because uh, yeah. these different loci obviously evolve at different speeds. What we know is that most of the SNPs in Xanthomonas citri, another study showed this, showed this, that actually most of them evolve neutrally, so okay. it's more or less okay, but I mean, still it's a rough estimate of the, of the mutation rate. But the fact that we already have this actually allows us more or less to predict how fast the, the pathogen evolves. So if you would have a fast mutation rate, you would have a faster evolving uh, pathogen with yeah. a strong adolescence, possibly. Yeah, exactly. So it can it it obviously if if it if the mutation rate is higher, then it has the capacity of evolving faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, it might not, but <laughs> there is a higher chance it would, and that means that also it's 
way of adapting to a new environment or even to a new host or whatever could actually go faster or slower. And if we know this, if we know how fast this can go, can also provide us a lot of uh, tools just for prediction. Can just predict how it's going to, how certain epidemics are going to grow and die out, etc. And so you did your uh, field work in La Réunion, right? If I pronounce it correctly. La Réunion, yeah, La that's Réunion. correct. What was life like on an island? So the island, just to give you an idea, is a. Uh, For reference, uh, for those who maybe have been in Mallorca, like it's a Spanish island in in uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, La Réunion is half the size of oh, wow. Mallorca. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually drive uh, across the island in three hours, I think. Mm -hmm. um, So it's a very small island and uh, its nearest uh, piece of ground is Mauritius. It's 250 kilometers away and then there is Madagascar, 700 kilometers away. So it's a very isolated place as well um, and very far away from Europe, of course. Uh, so in that sense, you really have to learn how to deal with, uh, with isolation. Actually, you are living in a closed system. Yeah. It's like living in a mini ecosystem of people. So, in an aquarium. <laughs> yes, so you encounter the same people very often, even if you go to other parts of the island, because obviously the island is very touristy. Um, it, has a, it is a beautiful place. I really recommend people to go there on holidays if they have Uh, the money, of course. Um, the island itself, I think, is not super expensive. It's the flying, obviously, because it's far away. away. Um, <clears throat> but um, it's a wonderful island. Uh, naturally, honestly, for me, it was a miraculous place to live. Uh, there is a volcano there, which is the most one of the most active volcanoes in the world, and I was as lucky uh, that I could actually witness two uh, volcano eruptions in the five months that I was there because it's not a the volcano eruptions are not dangerous they're they're um, usually limited to the crater so you can yeah. go to the side of the crater and, and and see the the actual lava being thrown in the air and this noise okay, of the yeah. volcano it's it's wonderful it's a very very special experience so I was I had the luck to witness that and to be honest it's um, It's hard to describe, but it really makes you, you know, realize the forces of, of the earth, of nature, and uh, how small you we yeah. are actually. That that was amazing, and that, at the same time, there is also a lot of, you know, there's a, there are wonderful mountains, a lot of microclimates and uh, different vegetation types, and you can go hiking everywhere. And honestly, the landscapes that you get to see are surreal sometimes because. The island is very young. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember exactly how old it is, but I think it's like 20 million years old. It's yeah. a very, very young island. And uh, so there is a lot of crazy geography, very like uh, steep. Uh, it's a super steep island to mm -hmm. begin with. So it's really small and its highest peak is 3,000 meters. Oh, wow. So that's pretty high. Yeah, so you get to see the craziest landscapes, to be honest, because the geography is so crazy and you, you can see past um, events, volcanic events still, the remains of it, and you can see it must have been incredibly violent because sometimes you see like huge pieces of land that clearly have been moved or have like fallen down and it creates a very strange geography as well. So it's, 
uh, it's it's really wonderful to go hiking and all of that. My day-to-day -day life was way less um, adventurous and I, I, I basically just learned to enjoy reading books, watching movies, uh, play cards with my housemates. Um, another thing that was sometimes a bit complicated was uh, the fact that it's a very, uh, it's a t completely French-speaking island. Did you learn French? Well, I already knew French because mm -hmm. I grew up in Brussels, mm -hmm. so uh, I, I, I am used to a French-speaking environment, but obviously this was 100% <laughs> French-speaking. And uh, in the beginning it was challenging, uh, not both linguistically and also culturally, funny enough. Uh, to be honest, uh, it was there, I, I sensed a lot of differences in the way of communicating and st things like that, and it took me a while to get used to that. I don't know if actually by the end I was used to it. Yeah. I think I never really completely integrated, but I did slowly understand how it, how it works on the island and with the, the people who were with me, who were, by the way, not people from the island. They were just like me, interns coming from France, from mainland France. So yeah, I had a couple of, of things that were a bit more challenging in my day-to-day -day life, which was the fact that I was not very mobile, the fact that I was uh, completely immersed in a strange, like in a different culture with no references whatsoever. So yeah. no other international people or any of my friends or or any of my family nearby, so that was obviously the challenging part. But that's the life of a researcher, right? It prepares you somewhat for what to expect in the future. Oh, it's 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 really really great that I got to do this experience because um, I, I got that I got to live this because uh, clearly for me um, it, it made me learn a lot of things, and you become incredibly versatile when you live go through these kind of uh, times where you're by yourself and you just have to like completely adapt and learn to accept that it, it works differently than what you're yeah. used to. And you did, you got this experience during your master's studies very early in your career mm. and through the MEME program. Do you think you would have had these opportunities through other master's programs or was MEME specifically encouraging you to go and seek out the world? Oh, definitely. Well, MEME selects people to begin with which are interested in going out Mm -hmm. out there and going to, to not just that are not just interested in the in the evolution but also in the in the adventure and the traveling and the, the other cultures etc um, so anyway I think all of us in our cohort were um, predisposed to go on these kind of uh, crazy uh, trips uh, but meme definitely makes it easier because uh, I can imagine any other master's program, which is uh, the basic master's program in a university, like uh, they don't have the same contacts. Mm -hmm. um, I would have never, never been able to uh, find this uh, project's proposal if it wouldn't have been mean. Because uh, so my supervisor, who sent around uh, the proposal of the project, he knew the the, the coordinator from Montpellier. All of this would have, it would have never gotten to me if I was doing my master's still in Belgium or, mm. um, or anywhere else, yeah, for sure. Meme really facilitates the traveling around and it is one of the uh, values and principles of Meme to, mm. to go and, and to move around. After two years, I gotta say, now I'm totally ready <laughs> to go somewhere that I already know and to stay there for a longer time. But uh, these are crucial experiences and it makes you 
it makes you relax, it makes you learn how to deal with difficult situations in your personal life and still be able to do your work. Or even better for me, very often my work actually in Réunion was my main drive. Yeah. There were moments where sometimes I would be a little bit um, lost, like I felt I was a bit stuck on the island. Yeah. And those days, really, the fact that I had this fascinating project was really what drove me and what kept me going. So uh, it makes you value your work as well and understand it and yeah, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so Clara, what was your meme trajectory? Where did you start? Where did you end up? I started in Groningen, uh, spent one semester there. Um, then I went to Munich and I fell in love with Munich. So I decided to stay there for one more semester. I did there my first master's thesis with uh, Ricardo Pereira. We worked on uh, the role of song divergence um, as a barrier to gene flow in uh, Cortibus grasshoppers. And then I went to Reunion. Mm-hmm. And now I'm finished. Now <laughs> you're finished, finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it went quickly. It went quickly, I gotta say. What do you think um, is a good advice for emerging young scientists, especially in evolution? What should they look out for to have opportunities like memes do? And how do they approach supervisors? And how do they get so great projects like you did? Well, do meme. <laughs> That's a, one advice I really want to give is if you are a bachelor's student, Uh, who is interested in evolution, check out the meme program. Uh, That's the first thing. Uh, But obviously, if if you're not uh, doing meme, then you can still get uh, to these wonderful projects. One, just email people. And uh, don't think uh, professors are some kind of gods that, uh, you know, don't think you are uh, worthy of their time or anything. They are normal people just as you are and they are always interested in taking new people so just make sure the working environment is nice Uh, and to do that just email other people who are in that group uh, phd students or postdocs or master students yeah don't be afraid Um, just go for it that's what i would say and one more question um when was the first time you ever thought about evolution when did you ponder about evolution how it impacts your life and life on earth Man, I don't know. <laughs> the first time, I, I don't really have a concrete uh, memory that links to the first time I thought about evolution, but I definitely remember being in high school and being really fascinated by uh, the fact that at a certain po- moment in Earth's history, things that were dead became alive. You know, chemical molecules suddenly formed this thing that we call life. I think that was something that really blew my mind in a way. And uh, obviously that is evolution and it's the beginning of life. So I, I would probably say that that is my earliest memory. I remember just sitting in class and being like, how is this even possible? <laughs> this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna know more about this, but actually, since I was a kid, I loved animals and, and dinosaurs, and it, I, I didn't understand how they had disappeared and, and stuff. And, and uh, so I think biology by itself and evolution as a just a, a change over time uh, has always been something I, I have loved. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, where can we hear more about your research? Where can we find out more about you? Do you have a Twitter handle or do you have a ResearchGate profile? 
I'm not super vocal about what I do, <laughs> um, but I do have a, I have a blog that I abandoned during meme because I just didn't have the time anymore. Mm-hmm. But that I'm going to retake now that I'm uh, that I'm done and I'm not gonna go into a PhD straight away. Otherwise, I also have a Twitter account, but I haven't been twittering about my research there. I just like to retweet things that other people do. Okay, cool. Uh, it's just my name, so yeah. And maybe later on I'll do things that are a bit more about what I do, but um, that's all in the future, I don't know yet. The future's bright though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for the interview, thank you for your time. Thank um, you. And thank you to everyone listening and joining us on the fifth episode and incredible voyage of the meme stream. We'll be coming to you more regularly again now that I'm settled in the US. Remember, you can read up more about Clara's work on the Meme Stream blog and ask any questions about what you've heard there. The Meme Stream is brought to you by the Erasmus Mundus Master's Program in Evolutionary Biology. Special thanks to the Meme Stream team and all their hard work and dedication to the project. Our intro music was written by the artist Magella, and the little ditty in the end was found in the depths of the internet by the YouTuber Sunil Singh. You can follow the meme stream on SoundCloud to listen to new episodes. And please remember to rate and share our podcast to help us adapt and evolve. Yeah, it's evolution. Yeah, it's Darwin's revolution. And it teaches us the history of life. Yeah, of life. It's evolution.